scripture reading this morning <laughs> is Matthew 11, 16 through 30. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, Gary... As much as I miss your voice, we just miss you and Sue. So it's good to have you back with us, as you could tell. You get more ovations than Dan Carpenter. So, um, A few years ago, um, my son, he, Calvin, he was about five or six. And everywhere he went, he joined us on his scooter. And he had this habit of scooting ahead of us, then coming back, and then dropping a deep thought, and then scooting off. Um, and on one of those occasions, he was with Amber, and they were running errands, and um, he came back and just dropped this thought. He said, Mom, it seems like sin grows up with you. Amber's like, tell me more. <laughs> what do you mean? He's like, well, as you grow up and you get bigger, it's like sin also grows up and gets bigger with you. And then he just scoots off, just savagely drops a theology bomb and is like, deal with that. I'm going to go scoot. And I don't know what made him think about that. I don't know what made him consider that reality. Uh, but I see that he's right on two things. One, sin grows up with you. It gets bigger. It gets more destructive. That your rebellion, your disobedience, your choices against God's way and God's plan for your life do get bigger and have greater consequences. But second, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And it's the second reality that I really want to focus on. And the way that this passage presents it is that there is rest to be found. There is relief to be found from sin growing up and destroying your life. 
but it can only be found by repentance. So that's the title of my message, Rest by Repentance. And um, I'm really kind of picking up where Kara left off last week, but the reason I chose this passage is because a few weeks ago I was drawn to the very last two verses, the, like the comforting ones, the, like the really coffee mug verses that say, like, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I was tired, so that was like good news for me. But when I started to put it in context, I realized that it wasn't just like exhausted from a bad week, difficulty at work, and just a retrieve kind of from that. But it's that we are weighed down and we are weary because of our sin, that the audience that heard that message was weighed down because there were other religious laws that were added as burdens on top of what God had already asked of them that they couldn't fulfill. And on top of that, just like the rest of us, they couldn't fulfill the laws that God already asked them to fulfill. So they were tired and they were burdened. And to that message, Jesus says, come to me. It was an invitation to be kind of relieved from all of that. And one of the things that struck me this week is that we don't always attribute our exhaustion or our weariness to sin. But I've started to consider maybe we just don't give it enough credit Because when you think about anxiety or worry and you begin to take that to a sinful place in this cycle, what does it do? It wears you out. It drags you down. Over time, it actually has physical implications on your heart, on just who you are, and it destroys your ability to live. Or trying to please everybody around you. That's like a yoke of slavery that you put on every single morning thinking, how many likes am I going to get on that Insta story? Is everyone going to follow my Insta story all the way through? I know you guys do that. You track that, right? But you start to think, how can I please everybody? And it's slavery. It's exhausting. And then when that one person that you wanted to please says something negative, it destroys you. You're weary and you're burdened. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes and brings this good news for rest for your soul that would also restore your body. And the question is, will you accept it? But the part that I missed about this passage the most as I reread it was that the path to repentance begins with miracles. But the path to repentance for this people, he says, it begins when I show up in a new and powerful way and force you to recognize that God is here. What are you going to do about it? And he begins to condemn these three cities because they did nothing. And as I read this passage this week, I think God was asking our church three questions. The first is, will you recognize God and the miracles? Will you recognize him? Will you recognize that he is the one that is moving here? That it isn't some cult of personality. It isn't some new way of doing church. It is God himself. Will you recognize God and the miracles? Second question is, as a result, will you repent of your sins? And third, will you come to Jesus to find rest and learn from him? Those are the three questions that I want to unpack today, and they're the three questions that I believe God wants you to answer. So first, will you recognize me in the miracles? That's what God asks. Will you see that it's him at work, or will you continue to look for something else to be God in your life? He's here. Will you recognize him? When Jesus begins to issue his woes and his criticisms of the three cities, 
That's what he says, is not that you didn't enjoy the miracles, not that you didn't observe the miracles. It's that did you see me in the miracles and turn from your sins? Because we can have the same danger as they had, that we can be observers, critics, like news analysts on CNN or sports analysts on ESPN, where we observe and we question and we give our opinions and our ideas and project what may or may not happen. But if we just observe, we never obtain the blessing. And so will you recognize him? And Jesus says that they missed him for two reasons. The first reason was that they thought he had a bad disguise. They said, God doesn't look like that. And to expound on that, he compared John the Baptist with himself. Because John the Baptist shows up in what tends to be kind of our religious understanding. He abstains from drinking. He abstains from eating and fasts regularly. He calls people to holiness. And they say, that guy's crazy. He has a demon. So Jesus shows up. He's like, all right, let's eat. Let's drink. Let's laugh. And they say, he's a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. Ooh, what a terrible title. And both, they say, that can't be God. Why? Well, it's because they were too wise and too intelligent. They were too learned about who God was and what he did and what he didn't do. And, well, God doesn't look like John the Baptist. God doesn't look like Jesus. And Jesus says, what do I have to do? What do I have to do in your midst before you recognize that it is God who is here, who has showed up to interrupt your mundane, everyday life and force you out of that into something better? That's what he began to say. He says, how could you not see me, Capernaum? I showed up and immediately cast out a demon in front of everyone. You liked it, so you brought all the people who were sick, and I healed all of them in front of you. When I came back, you dropped a paralytic through the roof, and I cleansed him of his sins, and then I told him to get up and walk. You loved the blessings, but you didn't follow me. He says, what more do I have to do, Bethsaida and Chorazin? I showed up and I healed the blind man. You even questioned him. Was he really blind? You wondered about him. You were skeptical. And you dug in and you found out, yes, he'd been blind from birth. And now he was healed. You ate of the food when I fed the 5,000. What more do I have to do before you say, this is God. I need to reshape my life around what he wants, what he's asking. See, there's a lot of us that would love the goodness of God, but won't, don't want to take God as the whole. And if we don't take God as the whole, we'll just taste a little bit, and then he'll move on. And the same can be said of us. We run the same risk. Because our modern minds are like, well, if Jesus showed up and like, healed a blind man right in front of me, I'm good. <laughs> like, he's God, I'm following problem is that's just not true. See, Ricky's question that he gave in his testimony in December and giving has just been an echo in my mind where he said when he was questioning whether or not to share the details about God's miracles in his life around giving and trusting God with his money, God said to him, what more do I have to do before you begin to speak of what I have done? That's the same question that Jesus asked those people. What more do I have to do? And we run the same risk here at LMCC. And Jesus says, well, wisdom is revealed by our deeds. Just look at the fruit. 
So I say to you, look at the fruit here. My question is, are you missing the point? Instead of just enjoying the fruit and being excited about what God is doing, are you turning back to him? Are you drawing near to him as he draws near to us? Because here's what God has done in the last nine months, just nine months. There are twice as many people, if not four times as many in our prayer meetings on Mondays and on Sunday before service. There's twice as many as you, it feels like. There's just a growth in our church, in our midst. Worship is alive and vibrant to the point where you show up and immediately feel the presence of God in this room. Beyond that, people are experiencing God in very personal and unique and new ways. And most of us are uncomfortable with it. Because we hear about people saying they're getting getting a new heavenly language called tongues. I've never experienced that, but they're experiencing it. And we're like, I I don't know. Does that really happen? Well, in the Bible it does. When God shows up, it's like, okay, here's the Holy Spirit. People speak in new languages. And they call out to him and they draw near to him. Beyond that, at, at a prayer night, we saw a few people be prayed over and then fall over and lay on the ground. Just as Dan Carpenter talked about in November. I told Dan before the service I was trying to avoid talking about him because he keeps score. And I don't want him to get credit for that. But in speaking to people, they're typically uncomfortable with these experiences too. Most of us wouldn't choose a new heavenly language as a way of God saying, I'm here. Most of us wouldn't choose falling over and then feeling like you can't get up because God's presence is so on you to give you peace and force you to rest. But when you meet with them, what you hear about is a joy, a peace, a nearness to God. And that's what we all want. And yet we find ourselves just analyzing it away and going, maybe that's just not for me. And so then God shows up in December in a more powerful way. And 38 people were baptized right here in front of all of you. 38. Next, (laughs) yeah. Next week, we're going to go on to our all-church retreat. And do you know how many people went on the first all-church retreat here at LMCC? 38. And next week, over 400 are going to go to the Weston and Princeton so that we can seek and worship God. So why do I feel the need to point this out? It's the same reason that Jesus did. Because if we miss God behind the works and we just celebrate the works, it's just a waste. Because what God is doing, he's saying, I am drawing near to you. Will you draw near to me? And the only way to do that is if we repent of our sin. Because the nearness of God is contingent upon us leaving behind the rebellious behaviors, the habits of sin, the choices that we have made that have rebelled against his clear plan and call on our lives. You will miss God if you just enjoy and observe the works. We run the same risk and we can't do it. At the end of the day, this is what you were made for. And so don't hear me call you to some moralistic behavior. That's not what I'm saying. You were made to draw near and to be with God, to be united with him in purpose, to be aligned with him in every area of your life because that's where the promises are found. That's where the blessings are found. That's where your best life is actually found. 
It's found in the physical blessings. It's found in the spiritual blessings. And both must come as we draw near to God. And we will not do it because sin hinders us. It stops us. It is the block. So God shows up in these miracles and says, don't miss the point. The point is not for me to do really cool things in your midst. I don't know why he chose chose to do it this way, but he seems to love it. But don't let it be noise that clouds out the ultimate purpose. I was talking about this with Brad Stansberry, and he used the analogy of style versus substance. And And it's really true here, because the people of Capernaum, the people that saw all the miracles, they missed the point because of style. They didn't like John's style. I kind of agree with them. But they didn't like Jesus' style either. And so they let style, presentation, appearance, they let that cloud out the substance of the message. So don't miss the substance because you don't like the style, whether it's here or anywhere else. Because God is here. And he's calling you to draw near to him. And he's calling you to do that in repentance. So the question is, will you see God in these miracles? And the answer will be found in you answering the question, will you repent of your sins? That's how we know that you actually see God. Every single time that someone sees God, their response is, oh my gosh, I am unworthy of being in your presence because of my sin. And then God responds with, don't be afraid, let me forgive you. My question is, have you responded in that way yet? Have you stepped back and go, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be in the presence of God because of my sin? Now, this is always the question of God showing up, and there's two questions. We've talked a lot about the first question. The first question that God asks when he shows up is, will you let me heal you of your pain? Will you let me heal you of the wounds of your past? Will you let me heal you of the harm that you carry with you? We've talked a lot about that, and we're going to continue to call God to heal in powerful and miraculous ways. We've not talked about the second question of will you repent of your rebellion against God? And part of that is because of the word repentance. Because if we're honest, it sounds really harsh. And that's largely because we read it through a lens of people who have presented it in very harsh ways. There are stereotypes for a reason. Because the word repentance tends to associate someone who stands on their own moral soapbox and calls out one particular people group, one particular sin, and condemns them. And so repentance has lacked compassion and repentance has lacked an explanation. And so as the church, we have to say, we're sorry for that. Because we did not represent the way Jesus actually presented it with compassion and with an explanation. So let me attempt to do that. And the way I want to attempt to do it is to explain it to you the way I tried to explain it to my boys when they were in elementary school. Um, Because as we talked about the fact that all of us have sin and it causes harm in our lives and separation of relationship, we talked to our kids about repentance. And the very definition at the core of repentance is the idea of turning around. It's that you change the direction of your thoughts, you change the direction of your heart, you change the direction of your life to fall in line with God. So the way that I did this was with my boys on the way to elementary school one day. And what I told them is, every time I said repent, we're going to turn and walk the other direction. 
So on the way to the school, we're walking, and I say, repent, and we turn, and we go the opposite direction. And then they're, like, looking at me, waiting, and I say, repent, and we go back. They're probably wondering, are we ever going to get to school? And it took twice as long, and there was a whole lot of laughter by them and probably people around us because we looked ridiculous because we were turning around every block, going back and forth. But they got the point. And I love that it was associated with laughter because that's the result of repentance. It's joy. The reason that God calls us to repentance is that we might find the fullness of pure joy instead of the fake joy of sin. Because I started to ask the question this week, why don't people repent? Why don't we, why don't I repent? And one of the reasons, I believe, is that we don't know the joy that's offered on the other side. We have such a low view of what God intends to do in our lives if we will trust him and actually leave behind the sins that wear us down and burden us. And so here, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. And what he's talking about is the fact that sin destroys your life, just as Calvin's analogy spoke to. And the sense that it wastes away who you are. It really corrupts you to the point that you are no longer who you were intended to be. And the offer is to turn away from that and to come and be made fully into who you are. That there is a restoration that can be found when we follow God and repent of our sins that will never be found by following our sins. The offer of sin is this fake joy, this temporary fleeting experience that if you choose it, it will satisfy you. And then you do, and it's empty. And worse than that, it's poison that just eats away at who you are. It's a Ponzi scheme. It promises you this great rate of return, and so you invest everything, and you run away robbed and, and bankrupt. That's the offer of sin. And then we have this low view of what God has, because we think he just wants us to be, to be removed of pleasure that the sin offers. No, it says, in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so he says, come to me because there is a vision of health, a vision of wholeness, not only in your career, not only in your success, but in your personal life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your singleness, that can only be found in God himself. And we have such a low vision of it that we don't repent. And so I love that it was associated with laughter because God says that's the end game. That's what I'm after, your joy, your laughter, your peace. But I can't get there unless you join me in repentance. But the second reason, I think, is that we overestimate the cost of repentance. Carol was right last week in the sense that if you are to repent and change your life, it comes at a cost. And many of us overestimate that cost. We think the benefit of sin outweighs the cost of repentance. And it's the opposite. That the cost of our sin far outweighs, far outweighs the benefits of our sin. And this is why I think Calvin's analogy is so great, because what he is saying is, how do I cut it off immediately so it doesn't just grow up and destroy me? Because a little bit of unforgiveness grows up into a big root of bitterness that pushes you into loneliness because you can't have a trusting relationship again. A little bit of lust grows up into pornography 
grows up into an infidelity and destroys families forever. And so the message of Jesus is repent early. <laughs> repent often. Let me set you free from the consequences of the path of death you are headed down. Because the scriptures say very clearly the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I know the end path that you are headed on, and I want to change the direction for you. And so if we understood that, yes, there is a cost to repentance, but the benefits far outweigh the cost. We would finally say it's, repentance is the goodness of God, the kindness of God, as it says in Romans 2. And so do it for the joy that is offered from God. It reminds me of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was crucified, he wrestled with God. And he said, if there is any other way, if there's any way that you could just do something else, any other avenue, I would do it. But don't call me to this. And finally he said, not my will, but yours be done. And you know why he did it? Hebrews 12 tells us. He said he did it for the joy that was set before him, knowing that there was a throne on the other side of the cross, knowing that there was a resurrection to come. He scorned the shame, endured the cross, endured the wrath, so that you and I wouldn't have to. And repentance feels the same way. Sometimes it feels like, God, just take something else. Don't put your finger on that just yet. Take this. Take, it's easier for me to let go of that. And then it just requires us to go, no, there's joy on the other side. There are consequences to your sin. It will come at a cost, and there will be a season of confusion, of wondering, of questioning. Is God really good when you finally confess and own up to your sin? Because you'll have to face the music, as you will. You'll have to deal with the consequences of the hurt you've caused, because that's what sin does. But for every death of sin, there's a resurrection in Christ. And so whatever you lose by repenting, you will gain in repentance because that's what God will do and restore you. So will you turn around? Will you repent of your sins, whatever they may be? But it's not merely just a turning to moralism. The question is, will you come to Jesus for rest and learn from him? Because for many in the religious circles, what we turn to is moralism and duty. Well, God doesn't want me to do something bad, so I'll just do a lot of good things to make up for it. We act like God is operating on the economy of karma. So we're like, let me make up for it. And Jesus is like, gosh, that sounds even more exhausting. Why don't you just come to me? Instead of going to moralism and trying to fix your life and make yourself look better, just reject moralism and reject the magnitude of your sin and just come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, put my yoke upon you, and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls, for I am gentle. I am humble in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He promises two things. The first he promises is rest. Because Jesus knows that you're exhausted by continuing in sin. 
Because sin demands that you do it over and over and over again to get that high, to get that pleasure, to get that moment, even knowing at the end of the day it's just going to hurt you. And Jesus says, aren't you exhausted from trying that way? Come to me. You'll get relief. You'll finally get freedom from the slavery of sin. Come to me. This reminds me of the paralytic that he talks about with Capernaum. Because Jesus offers to him full healing and rest. He could have just said, take up your mat and walk. And the paralytic would have been like, that's fantastic. I've been paralyzed my whole life. That's all I want to do is to be well. But Jesus knows that he would have been well physically, but empty spiritually. And I believe there are people that are in this room that are really satisfied with being well physically, that are being well provisionally with money and success, but you're impoverished spiritually. And so Jesus looks at the paralytic and says, what's more powerful than physical healing is to tell you your sins are forgiven. Be set free and be fully, holistically healed and restored to who you are made to be as a son or a daughter of God. And that's what he offers you when he says rest. It's not just the restoration of blessings and you'll be better and you won't have the destruction of sin. It's that you'll be free to have full joy and the spiritual blessings of an heir with God, an heir with Christ. That the throne of Christ is for you as a king and a queen. Don't settle for being a jester. And so the offer first is rest. That what sin has taken from your life, Jesus plans to restore if you will repent and come to him for that restoration. But the second offer is to learn from him, he says. And what he means by that is that you would surrender to a new master. And we don't like that phrase. We don't like surrender to a new master. But that's what he's saying. He's saying that sin has been your master, whose dictator is Satan, to destroy and demand from you more than you could ever give, so that he just takes and then condemns, takes and then condemns, and shames and gives you guilt. But the only way to be set free from that is to come to a new master. Because you can't just be rid of sin and then come to neutral and then figure out life on your own. Because then you become the master. And you can't carry that weight. You can't carry the weight of determining good and evil. And so God said, just trust me on that. You can't figure it out and you keep screwing it up. Maybe he just says that to me. (laughs) And so he says, let me be your master. Surrender to me. Because he knows that sin and Satan will never teach you anything. They will just lead you down a path of death. But he says, learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. Because one of the lies that sin has that he tells you over and over again is that you don't know another way to live, so you can only just do this. It's Stockholm Syndrome. That you begin to fall in love with your captor. And so you love sin so much that it's the only way you know how to get this high, and you think, if I get rid of this, what else can I have? Jesus says, well, follow me. Learn from me. Let me show you a better path. Let me show you a better direction. But it requires that you leave behind sin as your master, no longer submitting to Satan, but surrendering to Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, the name above all names, the one name, as we just sang, that will be at the end of days, that every knee will bow to. 
He is the great master. But Jesus is very clear that this is an offer. It's an invitation. And the question is, will you accept it? Now, you may be brand new to LMCC. This may be your first Sunday, so welcome. You may be brand new to Christianity. You may be exploring it for a while, and you may not like this style. You may not like the style of Christianity that you see on broadcast television or in the news. You may not like the style, but don't miss the substance. Don't miss God because we misrepresent him. But hear his offer to you today. See me in the mighty works that I do. Repent of your sins. Don't worry about the sins of others. Repent of yours. And hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Let's pray. Father, I'm just thankful. I'm just thankful to be here with these people, but I'm also thankful that you gave us a path out of death. You gave us a path of life. You gave us steps to take to partner with you. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would give power now to give us the courage to take it. You and I both know that we're too weak to do it on our own. So strengthen us. Strengthen our weak knees. Strengthen strengthen our minds that we may be able to hear your voice, to see you clearly and follow you. I ask that you do this for the power and the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.